Amen and amen. Isn't it a joy to see a young one singing the praise of the Father? We have a God that is at the same time as powerful as a roaring lion and as soft as a lamb. He knows everyone's name and he died on a cross for our sins. We have 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord this morning. One of which is that we have children, we have youth, we have our choir, and we have a congregation full of people with the same purpose, to give glory to the Father and to point others to Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me and let's sing together a blessing to the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His
blessing that we have is that Jesus died on a cross on Calvary for our sins. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame and I love that old cross where the and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, the old rugged cross. Oh, the old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a The dear Lamb of God, let His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last.
You may be seated as we continue in worship. There will be a day when we'll be able to lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Heaven is a place not about silver or gold, but being where Jesus is. But until we get there, we live every day in light of the fact that His love was shown on a cross. And we as Christians don't need to let those things that are behind us keep us back from serving him every single day amen josh is going to lead us in a song that perfectly puts that out front that his love ran red for us calvary there's a place where mercy reigns and never dies There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. All the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing Would down. Would you sing with us? The cross of the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in all of you. I'm in all of you. Will you love red, red, and my sin washed white? I owe all to you. I owe all to you,
today, if there's anything that's holding you back from Christ, I ask that you reflect on that now. Ask for forgiveness. There is forgiveness at the cross today. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to grace. He comes and He takes you just as you are. Died once and for all, for all sins. Just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to Desperate to be 
rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcome with open arms. Praise God. come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcome with open arms. Praise God just as I am. Praise God just as through song today can we just all confirm together that Jesus has paid it all that there is no supplementary grace that we need that everything was purchased for on the cross let's sing together as the choir exits Jesus paid it all Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin and left a crimson and stain he washed in white as snow sing it again Jesus paid it all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed in white as snow just the voices Jesus Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Father, we come to you today, broken and wounded and scarred from this life. Lord, and we pray that you would give us strength, that we would mount up on wings like eagles, that we would run and not grow weary, we would walk and not grow faint today. We would pray and uh, go together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Know you more, grow in you and go in you to all the world. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Right. Thank you, Brother Aaron, for leading us, choir and orchestra. Um, Brother David asked me a while back when they scheduled this vacation if I would uh, speak today, and I was, of course, happy to do that. When I wrote it on my calendar, it said today was National Bosses Day, and I just wonder if that was the fitting reason why he asked me to speak, and so... I assume that I should begin this morning by sharing just a list of reasons that I'm thankful for David being my boss. 
having come up with nothing, we'll begin our message this morning. <laughs> Brother David, I hope you have a great day on vacation today, <clears throat> if you're watching. Um, in all seriousness, we have a great team, and we love serving together, and we are, in fact, grateful for Brother David, even when he deserts us on Sunday mornings. Um, I'm grateful for Brother David walking us through the Sermon on the Mount. I have truly enjoyed uh, his passion for the Word and walking through this sermon together. It's been said about the Sermon on the Mount that this is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, and that is Jesus. This is the longest sermon that we have from Jesus Christ, literally sharing. And, and as David has walked us through, just to remember kind of what we've done to get to this point, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek or the gentle, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, the pure in heart, even those who are persecuted or insulted. How he talked to us about how we are to be light in a dark world and to be salt in the world. The teaching on anger and murder. And last week, the difficult teachings about adultery and divorce. Brother David asked me that we would continue in the Sermon on the Mount today, and actually we're going to continue in the passage he was in last week, discussing the the importance of the law, how it reveals our sinfulness, and some instructions for you and I regarding our sins. So read with me, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27 as we continue the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away far from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. Jesus begins here by saying what we find over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said that this is the standard, but I tell you, there's a higher standard. Jesus references the Pharisees' teaching of the law. You see, they were keeping the rules. They were content that they were watching the obligations and the regulations. And they were quite proud of themselves that they had kept the actual letter of the law. They were very focused on their outward appearances and they were very focused on what other people thought of them. They had turned the Christian life into the do's and the don'ts. Thou shalt always do this and thou shalt never do this. And somehow they were content to to make these lists. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount goes deeper than that. He took the standard which was the law and he looked deeper into the heart of the matter. He was calling out the self-righteousness of these Pharisees while, while at the same time calling you and I with their, into a deeper walk with him. You don't have to wonder what Jesus thought about the Pharisees. Over and over in scripture, we see him addressing them. If we look over in Matthew chapter 23, we see Jesus pronounce woe to the Pharisees for an entire chapter. 
Over and over, he says, woe to you, you hypocrites. Look with me in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. You too outwardly appear righteousness, righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus was teaching that they needed to clean up first what was on the inside. They needed to address their heart issue. And then he compares them to whitewashed tombs that are clean on the outside and full of death on the inside. We find another uh, illustration of, of our comparison between Pharisees and someone when we look at the passage between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Look with me in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. And he also took, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you I'm not like those other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. But the tax collector Standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what was the difference between these two men? Both were sinners, but one was very proud of who he was because he had kept the law. One was very satisfied with where he was and the other understood his deep, deep sin and his great need for forgiveness. And this passage states that he was the one who went away justified because he understood his sinfulness. And you and I have to come to the place to where we are face to face with our sin and the law reveals our exceeding sinfulness. The law shows us how just how sinful we are. We can all relate to this on some level. Our sinful nature wants to violate a law. If we're given a rule, there's something within us that makes us want to break it. Somehow when something is prohibited from us, it makes us desire it all the more. Any of us with children in the room understand that, right? We've seen that work out in our parenting. For me, when I decide I'm on a diet and I'm going to say I cannot have sweets, what do I want more than anything? Right? Late at night, all of a sudden, I'm thinking about what is in the freezer. I'm thinking about asking my daughter to make some cookies. I want it more when I can't have it because I know that I'm not supposed to be doing that at that time. I can tell you, uh, my children... It doesn't take, it do, it's not hard to tell stories about children when you're, when you're preaching on sin. 
<laughs> Children will debate if given a rule. They will immediately come to task to debate that rule. They will explain immediately the list of reasons why that shouldn't be the case. Immediately they will tell me why it's not fair, right? There's not a verse in the Bible about things being fair. But they will give me examples of what other people, they will compare themselves to other. Well, other parents don't make their kids do this. In the same way, unfortunately, you and I interact with the law of God because we see scripture and we see the law and we actually resist it as well. We will rebel against having to submit to the law of God. We will hesitate to fall under the authority of Scripture. We will give excuses, and unfortunately, sometimes we even compare ourselves with others on that one item. But why do we do this? Because we don't like being told what to do. We don't want to lose control. We don't want to submit to an authority higher than ourselves. We don't want to yield everything to Christ. But that is, in fact, what we've been called to do. But the law was given to show us our failures. The law was given to show us our sinfulness. Look with me in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When we're faced with the law, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament teachings, we're faced with our failures. We understand that we are sinners. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned Aside, together they have become useless. There's none who, do, who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is on their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are on their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now listen carefully. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, we see in this passage that because of the law, our mouths are going to be closed. Because of the law, we're going to be accountable to God. We're going to stand before him one day and have to give an account of his standard and where we fell underneath that. And when we stare into God's holy word, we understand very, very quickly that we are all sinful. And when we're faced with that understanding, we understand just how we have fallen short of the expectation before us. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is a, a sad picture of us separated from Christ what our situation is without Christ that we were born dead in our sins and that we were sons of disobedience and that is a hopeless description for anyone who has not accepted Christ 
as their Lord and Savior. Now, I know you tire of stories of my children, and they are concerned at this moment as I'm standing here telling stories. But as I, I teach on this, this, this is just it's a perfect example. I have one child. I'm going to let him be nameless. Ooh, I let off the hymn that narrowed it down a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> when he was young, he refused to acknowledge wrongdoing. He could not, he would not, under any, any circumstance, acknowledge that he was wrong, more or less apologize, more or less be willing to acknowledge that he had violated a rule or done something that was inappropriate. Now, this brought about some very tense moments and some really creative parenting, and I promise you there was punishment involved. But to be clear, this was a picture of him unwilling to understand his sinfulness, unwilling to address his failure, and moreover, his refusal to face the truth that he had missed the mark, even in this parenting situation. But that is what the law does for you and I, right? The law reveals to us that we've in fact missed the mark, that we've missed the standard, that we've fallen short of what a holy and righteous God expects of you and I. Romans 8 verse 7 says, Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we understand the conflict between the law and the flesh. And we understand that the law reveals to each of us our sin. But does that mean that the law is bad? Well, not at all. The law reveals our sin, but the law itself is good. We read that in Romans 7, verse 12. So then the law is holy, then the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But what the Pharisees had done was distort the law. They had, they had a false understanding of this Old Testament law, and they felt pretty good about themselves because they had kept the very letter of the law. They were looking at their outside actions and Jesus turns the table on them and reminds them that he looks at the heart. Look with me again in Matthew chapter 5 verse 27. You have heard it said you should not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. The commandment that they were okay with, that is the Pharisees, was thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Their actions, And they were able to say, I have not committed that act and therefore I am right before God. The commandment that they had neglected was thou shalt not covet, which is a heart issue. And Jesus points out what is already quite obvious. One sin doesn't begin as adultery. One sin begins in the heart when we begin to covet something else. One sin begins when we're dissatisfied with what it is that the Lord has already given us. One sin begins when we entertain what life could be if we only had something else. Now this isn't a new problem. We remember Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were in the garden, had everything that they could ever dream or imagine. How did sin begin? And she looked at the fruit and it was desirable and she allowed that thought to dwell until she acted on that thought and sin came into the world Jesus brings that full circle here for you and I in the Sermon on the Mount 
And it says, for those who look lustfully at a woman have already committed adultery in our heart. They've missed the mark as well. We must realize not only the nature of sin, the subtlety of sin, but the consequences of sin in our lives. Until, until we recognize our great sinfulness, we'll never understand our great need for a Savior. Until we address our sinfulness, we'll never embrace the sanctification process or yearn for the holiness that God expects in our lives. We must hate our sin. But before we can hate our sin, we've got to recognize our sin in our own lives. Not only does Jesus point out here that if we lust, we're guilty of murder. Just a few verses back, he said if we're angry, we're we're guilty of murder. So if we're guilty of murder and adultery, what are we to do? You see, that's the impossibility of, of the problem that Jesus was laying out and putting on display here in the Sermon on the Mount. He exposed that we cannot be righteous enough on our own. We will never be able to keep enough rules in order to be right before God. We will never be able to work our way to the point that God is happy with us. We will fall short just as the Pharisees had fallen short. And Jesus knew they were listening, but they were pleased that they had kept the law and they felt pretty good about themselves. But he also knew that they had not mourned over their sin, that they were not poor in spirit, that they didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. The more we study the law, the more we realize that we can't keep the law, which leaves us having to deal with our heart issue. So the first thing we saw was that the law reveals our exceeding sinfulness. The second thing we see in our study today is that Jesus knows our heart. Now, intellectually, you and I understand that. Intellectually, we are comfortable with the fact that God knows everything. God knows everything. He knows my heart. Remember when the Lord sent Samuel to look for a new king for Israel? We read about it in 1 Samuel 16. As they were studying the sons of Jesse, this was his counsel in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or at the height or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, Samuel was attempting to make this decision based on the characteristics that you would hope you would have in, the, in your next king. He wanted to look for somebody who was big, who was strong, who looked like he should be king. But the Lord was concerned with so much more. And specifically what the Lord was concerned was with the heart. Just like with the heart of King David. He is just as concerned as your heart and my heart as well. Proverbs 16 verse 2 says. All the ways of a man are clean in our own sight. But the Lord weighs the motives. Not only is the Lord concerned with our heart, but he knows about our motive, the motives of our heart as well. He's concerned with our heart. He's concerned with our motives. He's concerned with our mind. He's concerned with our deeds. Revelations 2.23, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. How does all this work? What? What are we to do with the truth that the Lord already knows our heart and the motives of our heart? 
The truth is our motives can be good and pure or our motives can be bad. We can do something that is right for all of the right reasons or we can do something that is right for all of the wrong reasons. So many stories that we could tell about that, right? Anyone who's had children in the room? Sorry, guys. Joshua's getting nervous over there, I can tell. Anyone who's had children, our motives can go either way. But you and I both understand this concept as well. We want people to think what's best of us. We're concerned about what other people think of us. We're honest. We're selfish by nature. We're very concerned about what makes us happy, what is best and easiest for us. But the slippery slope of sin begins in our heart. And when we give too much attention to outward appearances and don't worry about our heart, our heart will get us into trouble. A Bible story that we're very familiar with is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We won't read the whole story. Y'all are familiar with this one. King David, the king we talked about just a little while ago, one evening took a walk on his roof innocent enough, right? And he noticed a woman named Bathsheba who was bathing on her roof. No harm, no foul. But he continued to watch and noticed that she was beautiful. Thou shall not covet. And he sent word to find out who she was and he found out she was married and he had her brought to him. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then when the circumstances of her pregnancy were about to be revealed and things were going to get very difficult, began a cover-up. And the cover-up eventually led to murder. And all of that started in the heart. How is it that we rationalize this moment? King David, a man after God's own heart, allowed himself to get that far down the road in sin. Well, it's because of our heart problem that we find ourselves there. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, it's not the lustful looking that caused sin in his heart. It was sin in his heart that caused the lustful looking. So what are we to do? The law has revealed our great sinfulness and our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Everyone is commanded to live up to this perfect standard of the law, but we all fall short. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The condemnation for sinning is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The punishment for our sin is to be separated from the Lord. I don't want to rush this moment. I know that most of you in this room have already worked this out in your heart. But in a room of this size, there are people who are sitting here hearing these truths and know that their hearts are far from the Lord. That they've heard the stories about Christ, that they know about the cross, but they've not been forgiven of their sins. And if they were honest, they know that they are lost and separated from God. They may not know what to do next. Well, Jesus started out this sermon by explaining that we must be poor in spirit. That is, we must recognize our great need for the Lord. That we must 
mourn over our sins. That is, we must show repentance for our shortcomings. And he also shared that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Now, this is a a beautiful truth. He came to fulfill the law. God himself provided the fulfillment of the law through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The demander of righteousness is also the giver of righteousness through Jesus Christ. The lawgiver is also the redeemer. You see, the wages of sin is death. And the Bible teaches that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So Christ came to earth and lived a perfect sinless life and ultimately went to the cross in order to pay for the sins of the world so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, if you're in this room and you've never put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, I beg you not to delay. Trust Christ because he has, he has provided the way to pay for the penalty of your sin so that you might be forgiven and enjoy him forever. Find someone today and make sure to, to get that right. If you're sitting in this room right now and you know that that's you, I invite you to get up and leave. There's a table in the back and there's people there that will share the gospel with you right now and pray with you so that you can settle this in your heart. It's that important. If you're unwilling to get up and walk out in just a few minutes, we're going to have an extended invitation and I've asked Aaron to sing so that we can all do business with the Lord and I beg you to come down and talk to one of our pastors. But do not leave this place without security of knowing that you have been forgiven of your sins because God loves you and he sent his son to provide that for you. Now we've seen that the law reveals our exceeding sinfulness and we've seen that Jesus knows our heart. And now we see as believers for all of us in this room that have experienced the salvation that comes through Christ. As believers, we are still called to fight sin. Look with me again in Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Now remember, Jesus is addressing the same Pharisees that he had rebuked earlier. They had inverted the proper order of things. To them, self-righteousness and ceremony and what people saw on the outside was the most important. And Jesus wanted a heart transformation. What happens on the inside? Not only did he want a heart transformation, but he wanted that to be what motivated them to live an obedient life in their actions. Jesus was not suggesting that they literally cut off their hand or gouge out their eye, although there were believers that took that admonition seriously and and did just that. 
But that doesn't really make sense, does it? Jesus had just explained that our sin problem was in our heart. It's not in our eye. It's not in our hand. If I were to cut off my right hand so that I do not sin, I still have the opportunity to sin with my left hand. That's not what Jesus had in mind. What Jesus was teaching is that we must be willing to remove anything in our life to protect our life from evil. Even that which is most precious to us. You see, it was a common understanding in the day that your right hand was your most important hand. Apologies to all the lefties in the room. It was a common understanding that your right eye was more important than your left eye. And what Jesus was trying to illustrate here is there's nothing in your life that is more important. If it's going to hinder you from walking with me, if it's going to cause you to sin, remove it from your life. Jesus was making the point no matter what, we must be willing to deny ourselves of it in order that we would not sin against the Lord. If we have a true hatred for sin, if we understand our great exceeding sinfulness and we know that God's expectation for us is holiness, then we want nothing to do with it. And anything that hinders us from a walk with the Lord, we would be willing to let go of. In Luke 14, 26, a similar passage where Jesus makes another statement that is just as bold. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, Jesus wasn't teaching that we should hate our family, nor was he teaching that we should maim ourselves. He was teaching that we should love him supremely. That if we understand our sinfulness and we understand the generosity of sending his son for, for the forgiveness of our sins, that we would love him so supremely that we would, we would rid ourselves of anything that might separate us from him. In the same way, he's not teaching us to maim ourselves. He's teaching us that nothing is more important than our holiness. Nothing is more important than our relationship with Christ. This is not a call to self-mutilization cutting off our hand or gouging out our eye. To be clear, this is a call for ruthless self-denial. A decision that we would make to deny self in order to glorify him with our life. We must remove harmful influences from our life in order to fight the sins that we face. We must control the environment that we're in in order that we might be pure in heart. And that is different for each one of us. You see, the issue with the Pharisees is they had decided they were imposing those rules and regulations on others. And we've got to look at the Lord and say, Lord, I love you so much. Anything in me, search my heart and know my heart and remove anything within me that doesn't bring you glory. And be willing to remove that in order for our relationship with him to be proper. I know of a friend who had struggles and he turned in his phone and he got a flip phone. So that he would not have access to things that he shouldn't have access to. Now in the, in the midst of that decision, he could no longer look up a map and find a way to go. He no longer had an app to order food at, at restaurants. But he also no longer had access to things that caused him to sin. And he made that self-decision in order that he might glorify the Lord. We've got to be willing to remove things from our lives, not to be legalistic, not to look righteous on the outside, but to remove the temptation so that we might, in fact, have a pure heart. 
and not sin against the Lord. You've heard the saying, sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a destiny. We know from God's word we reap what we sow. We've got to be very careful what we're sowing into our lives, what we are allowing to process into our hearts and into our lives. No matter where the sin leads, it begins in our thoughts, in our mind, and in our heart. An adulterous heart makes plans to satisfy its lusts through the mind and the flesh. A godly heart makes plans to avoid temptation in advance. After years of student ministry, there were many, many, many occasions where I had to counsel about dating, counsel about standards, counsel about sin, and determining what is it that is your conviction so that before you find yourself in a situation, you have already determined between you and the Lord where the line will be so that you may honor him with your life. Psalm 119, one of the stanzas, beginning in verse 33, says this. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe to the end. Give me understanding that that I may observe your law and keep it with all of my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. We have to love the Lord and his statutes and his word and his plan for our life in advance so that we can yearn to live within the guardrails that he has placed for us to live out and work out our salvation. You see, the Pharisees had had placed these rules and regulations that were burdensome, but the Lord has given us his precepts, his law, his word to protect us from sin so that we might live the life that he's called us to live and bring him glory. We see this in the life of Job. He made plans in advance to love the Lord and not sin against him. This was revealed in a passage that I memorized in college. Job 31.1, I made a covenant with, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. You see, our battle against sin should be proactive. We've got to, to begin to battle that before it is reactive. If we wait until we're in the moment, our flesh will fail. But if we have convictions long before we find ourselves in that moment, we'll be prepared to make the right choice. Paul explains the need for discipline in your life and my life in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it for a crown that will not last, but we do it for a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. 
I do not fight like a boxer beating in the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified for the prize. We are not to make any provision for the flesh. Our battle is between our flesh and our spirit. And if we are children of God, we have the spirit dwelling within us, a very present help in our battle for holiness. I love what Paul said, I make my body my slave. We are in control of what we allow to happen and we have to take responsibility for the life that we've been called to live. Romans 8.13 says, this is how we're going to accomplish this, brothers and sisters in Christ. If we're going to battle the flesh, if we're going to battle sin and temptation, this is how it's going to be won. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live One of my favorite chapters of scripture is Colossians chapter 3. I know that I've said that before, but it's entirely practical and it addresses uh, what we are to do, what we are to get rid of in our life, and what we are to replace it with as we address the battle for sin and righteousness in our own hearts. And I'd like to read it as we close today. If you would think very practically through what the Lord is saying in Colossians 3 and how it applies to our command to be fighting sin in our lives as believers. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. It all begins with this. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and that's the question, have we yielded our life? Have we died to our desires? Have we said, my life is not my own, but I'm willing to follow you the rest of my days? For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, kill, mortify. John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So you make the choice, verse 5, to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore is God's chosen people. This is what we replace after we've gotten rid of all of the things that he despises. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members you were called to one body and called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, 
singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Verse 17, and we'll close. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him.